Welcome to the Real Freedom Podcast with your host, Ryan Weimer, live from London. With me today, I have Mr. Chad Young. Chad, how are you? Dude, great. This, I just realized you were in London. Like, I know you live there, but this is an international <laughs> podcast for me. This is my first now. Now I'm I, doing really, really good. <laughs> I, I'm not going to put it on camera here. I even have a cup of tea and everything, but yeah, I'm blending in big time. Awesome, man. So guys, for those of you listening, Chad is an absolute killer. They do what, Chad? Almost 100 deals a year in the Spokane, Coeur d'Alene area. Everything from wholesale, fix and flip, you name it, they get it done. Can you talk to us, Chad, a little bit about your background and just how you got to this point and, and what brought you to real estate? Totally, but I have a request. You can't laugh Let's do it. because I don't know if you've ever heard like the full story. Okay. So like everybody, I rich, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was like 16. And I, well, I guess probably everybody doesn't do that. But I read that book when I was young. And I was like, cool. So I just got to get into real estate. Like got to get a high paying job or create a business, have excess funds to invest in real estate. It sounds easy enough. My wife and I started a janitorial company. And so we cleaned lots and lots and lots of toilets. And gosh, this is, we started the month we got married. So like 2013 and we did that for about seven or eight years. And then we had our first son. And I remember just, we had at that point, like 30, I think 13 employees. We had like 30 or 35 commercial buildings we were cleaning in our area. And it is ridiculously hard to hire for that. And maintaining a staff of like 13 was stupidly hard or getting to at that point we weren't in as tight of a job market as we are now when we sold the company but it was like very very close to that and i just remember telling my wife when like we were looking at having our kid we were like maybe a month out i'm like babe this is like night work like and, and i was only working an hour a week at that point like we had a manager it was great but it was like hey if our manager like gets hit by a car decides to quit like everyone does in this industry like i'm back to going and checking to make sure toilets were cleaned at midnight. And that does not sound fun with a newborn kid. And we had started that business to have money to invest in real estate. And I kind of look back and I'm like, Hey, this is cool. In seven years, we bought like one duplex. That's not fast enough. And so yeah. I remember literally being in the hospital when our over that stay where our first son was born. And I read a book called the book on flipping houses by Jay Scott. He's one of like the bigger pockets authors. And he just kind of, it wasn't a book on flipping houses. It was a book on how to make a business out of flipping houses. And I was like, well, I want to flip houses and I've already grown a business. I need to marry these two things together. And so it took a ton of stupidly imperfect action, like bought the wrong list, mailed the wrong people, had numbers on my mailers. It didn't work. Like any mistake you could make, I made for about nine straight months. And I just immersed myself in listening to every podcast I could reading every book. I started just talking to anybody that I knew that was in investment and just trying to provide value and just being very, very curious about what they did. Okay. kind of settled on, I wanted to flip, but I realized that I need to learn how to wholesale to kind of source the flips for myself because it was a pretty competitive market when we started in 2020 or 2019, I actually started marketing. 
and then yeah man i can tell you as much as you want <laughs> so it's so funny that you say you're like one person away from literally cleaning and fixing toilets right that's always yeah. like the that's always like the saying like i don't want to get into real estate because i'll be getting called for fixing toilets and all this stuff but you're yeah. like literally like the next guy in line in that cleaning business to do that just one step back like being entrepreneurial yeah. what made you like want to start a cleaning business instead of just work for somebody else in the first place yeah, I just have had that personality type from like the very beginning. I, I've always been entrepreneurial. I had a lawn care company in high school just because I realized I could work one hour there and make five times per hour than what I made at any other job. I would buy and sell stuff in school when I was in the army doing training. I like I literally remember in like the phase after basic training is called AIT, advanced individual training. And I went home on Christmas leave and I went to the the pawn shop at the time and I bought like 50 movies like DVDs because they're on sale for like a dollar and I brought them back and I would rent them to guys for a dollar a piece and I paid a dollar <laughs> for them so the ROI was pretty sweet <laughs> hard to scale Some um, high margins yeah yeah but I've just always been that way dude it, like I think who the heck was it like Steve Jobs I, I think it's Steve Jobs but he's got a quote attributed to him that says if there's ever a hard job to do, I will find a lazy person to do it because the lazy person will find the fastest way and the easiest way to do it. And I have been that, dude. I don't know if it's just pure laziness or resourcefulness, but if there's a job to do, I'm just always like, I always saw when I worked for other people, I was like, there's a, an easier, more efficient way to do that. And I'm going to take that route. <laughs> and then, yeah, dude, since 20, I guess 21 or 22, I've just been self-employed. And like, it's just, when you get used to that freedom, you can't ever go back ever. Like I would, I would rather mow lawns and work for myself than work for somebody else. Yeah. I, I totally resonate with that. Absolutely. Before we go a whole lot further, a big theme of this show is we want to really start off the episode with what everyone's most beautiful failure is. So Chad, what is your most beautiful failure? Oh, dude. You're going to make me, you're going to make me go there. <laughs> I've got a book of them. If so we're talking <laughs> pure loss, dude, those condos, those were so bad. So if we're looking at like the gap between what we could have made and what we lost, we're talking like $180,000. Like it sucked, but we bought, we had this lead come in. This was like two years ago. And it was, I'm not kidding dude. Like the heart of downtown Spokane empty condo shells that you could build out. And I'm like, this is baller. We got them for like 50,000 a piece and or maybe 70,000 a piece. We got them super cheap. And, but they were subterranean condos. And I'm like, what the heck is that? Like what was like a submarine underwater? And so I went and checked them out and they're like below grade. And I'm like, eh, not a problem. Like location, location, location. <laughs> like who cares if they're no daylight. But anyways, we had a realtor at the time that was like, dude, these would go for 150,000 a piece right now. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I think this is 2021. So like turd with hair on it, like 50,000 over asking price. Right. <laughs> and, and so we're going to wholesale them. And dude, it was a weird setup. Cause like the owner was out of country. And so we had to find like a notary in her native country that could translate the documents into English so it could be noted or into Spanish so it could be notarized and they had to be translated back. It was weird, but we got it closed. Anyways, we had offers at the time when we were wholesaling it and we would have made 50,000 a piece and we had two condos. So it was a hundred thousand dollars we could have just walked with. 
And I was like, no, forget that. Like we're taking title to it. And because our realtor was like, you guys can make like hundred K a piece on these things. So I'm like, okay, we'll do that. So I took title to it and throughout our due diligence process, which I'm very much of the like, what do they call like fire aim ready type mindset? Like I just do, there's not a lot of thinking and due diligence in most of what we do. And throughout the due diligence process, we ended up taking like the interest in the condos was just not as hot as it was anticipated to be. And then we started to get some offers and the people that were giving offers did their due diligence come to find out we were one inch shy of being able to have this be a residential place. And so like to oh. make this a residence, we had to, we would have had to jackhammer the floor of like a five story building. Like this is the basement in a five story building like a hundred something year old building. And we were like, well, that sucks. And so the only permitted use was storage, <laughs> oh, which you can it's imagine. A game like, of inches. Oh, dude. Yeah. And so we ended up losing like $50,000 between the two condos or something when we could have just wholesaled it to somebody and made a hundred. And so, so that was a beautiful failure. When, when you said, when you said you took title to it, but then you were in your due diligence period, I, I assume you mean before you took title to it or no? No. Yeah. See, that's how it normally works is smart people who have done this realize that due diligence goes before purchase. And I was like, oh, they're slamming deals. Like we can't lose. I couldn't tell you how many times I've said that. And then I've lost money, but we've made more money than we lost. So it's been worth it. But yeah, no, in the buyer's due diligence, like we were under contract to sell it. And the buyer was coming to us with questions like, what's the permitted use? And I'm like, I don't know. Call the city. Like, you're the one that wants to buy it. Right. <laughs> and they called the city and it was like, I guess they sent somebody out and took measurements. And I was like, well, that sucks. <laughs> and so we ended up selling them at like a big loss. But and I have no idea what the people even did with them, man. But How much did you end up losing? I think it was like 50000 between two of them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Which, yeah, in, in our world as investors is... For any person, right, that's a large amount of money, but it probably won't be your biggest loser over the course of, oh, dude, <laughs> hopefully we're taking, it is. We're looking but... at taking another 50 this month on a project. Okay. Like, yeah, dude, it's, <laughs> they're, they're kind of common. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay. Why real estate from the cleaning business? You mentioned how it, it took you seven years to get that one duplex. Yeah. This kind of goes into defining what what real freedom is for you too like myself i know real estate just seemed like the easiest path to financial freedom or at least the most maybe not the easiest but the most common path yeah H- how did you come about it and and was it that same thing for you cuz you could have gone and started a, a different business altogether right for sure yeah it, and that's a good question cuz there are a lot of factors that contributed to it one of the ones that i've heard from a young age and i looked up and you can verify it that 90% of the world's millionaires were created through real estate and i was like well that if that's like the path of least resistance cuz we're humans we're lazy we always take the path of least resistance i was like this looks good and then you start dude i just like you start reading books about the tax advantages and you just look at like how fast money multiplies when it's not taxed And it's like, you have to work for a 10th of the money that when your money is taxed heavily in order to multiply and get the same result. My grandpa was a pretty big influence. He had flipped a couple hundred homes in like the eighties and seventies. He did about maybe 10, 20 homes a year for like 10, 15 years and was able to retire really early. And he did some cool stuff where he would like, there was no due on sale clauses at that time. And so he would 
buy homes, take out bank financing, and then literally just turn around and sell them to people with higher financing. But I just started reading all the books and I was like, well, you mean to tell me that like I can buy something, leverage someone else's money, it goes up in value. Like on average, it doubles in value every 10 to 15 years. It's being paid down by somebody else, hopefully providing cash flow in the meantime. And then the government gives me big tax breaks for it. I was like, Get, tell me one other thing that checks all those boxes. And I, I didn't have to look very hard and it was like nothing, nothing else checks all those boxes. <laughs> so yeah. lazy. So you, so you had a little bit of family influence that you had been, I, I guess, exposed to real estate in some capacity then? A little bit. I mean, like by the time I was around, my grandpa was well retired and he was just living off of notes. And so he was not involved in it anymore. But I just remember hearing him talk about these property. And I, I remember hearing my grandpa being like, yeah, I bought a house for $50,000 and the same day sold it on owner contract for 70000 And I was just like, what? Like you just literally <laughs> signed documents here and signed documents here and made 20000 And granted, this is in the 80s. It'd be a lot bigger now. But I was like, that's pretty cool. Like I'd have to work a lot to do that in a W-2 job. Yeah. So, so what is that vision of real freedom to you? What does that mean to you? That's a good question, dude. There, I read a book not too long ago, and I think it's called Buyback. The book was called Buyback Your Time. Yeah. A phenomenal a book. But the guy had a quote in there. I'm going to totally butcher it. But it said, like, most entrepreneurs will grind until they can't grind anymore. Smart entrepreneurs will create a system or they'll create a game that they want to play the rest of their lives. And that's kind of been it for me. Like I, I really, really enjoy growing a team and a culture and a business and being able to impact your community locally. And yeah, there's days where it's stressful and hard, but like this is freedom to me, even though I'm working, you know, 40 hours a week, I'm not grinding till my nose bleeds or anything, but it, it's fun, man. Like we get the opportunity to create and grow something. And that to me is freedom. And I want to get the business to a point, and it's it's really close to getting there where like the ultimate business to me does not stop when I go on vacation. And that's how it's set up right now. And I will always be a bottleneck to our company as long as I am in a role, any other role other than owner. And so I'm trying to fire myself from every position as fast as I can because it's stunting the growth of every other department when they have to rely on me for an answer and it's not completely in their wheelhouse. And so just trying to grow quick to get that complete freedom. But that is freedom to me, man. Just being able to do what you want to do every single day. And I love coming to work. Like, absolutely love it. So it is possible. What you're saying is it is possible building a business and doing what you love 40 hours a week. Because I know there's a lot of, we'll call them gurus on social yeah. media that are like eternal grinders. Well, there's, yeah. a, there's actually two extremes, right? There's the eternal grinders where it's like, you need to optimize every minute for getting you to the outcome as quick and as fast as possible. And if you yeah. don't, then you should feel like crap because you're not living to your full potential. And then on the other side, there's, you need to have balance, like quit mm -hmm. working so hard like that you're unbalanced, right? So where do you think, like the truth is somewhere in the middle. Where, where do you think that lies? I think it's a, you have to take an assessment of what you want to do. Like I've got a really cool young guy that I've been talking to and he's been asking me about business and I'm like, dude, I could teach you to grow a business just like mine if you wanted to, but you need to look at what you want. Like, do you want a business you can work from anywhere? Do you want a business you only need to work five hours a week? 
Do you want a business that you can work it when you want to work it? Or do you want to be in nine to five? And like freedom to me, when I owned a janitorial company, I worked an hour a week and made a hundred thousand dollars a year. Like that was pure freedom to me. But I knew that I was one key hire away from walking away from being back in it. I was not growing assets. Like there was no retirement that came with that. Though we did sell the business, they're not traditionally very sellable businesses. And it's really, it's a, a personal thing. There's people that are okay working 80 hours a week and are not married to Mexicans that would never allow that. I am married to a Mexican who would never allow that. Like, <laughs> dude, they would not find my body if I got home at like 5.30 every night. I'm home at 5.15, man. <laughs> my office, I get off at 5, home at 5.15. And that's part of it though, dude. You have to have like, I know you with your wife, like you guys have those boundaries. You travel for work and I'm sure you've had those conversations of like, as a married couple in this stage of our life with young kids, like what are we willing to sacrifice and what are absolutes for us? And my wife and I just sat down and I was like, well, you can work 40 hours a week. I'm comfortable with that. Home for dinner every night. You don't work out of office. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Like that's what I want to do too. So. Yeah. I think you nailed it. The key there is you sat down and you talked about it. The bar for successful relationships and a shared vision and, and alignment is really low. Like it just starts with basic mm -hmm. communication. I think most people are just afraid. They're afraid of what the other person is going to think before they even yeah. have the conversation, right? And that's really totally. not a healthy relationship. No. And a lot of people, like there is no, no amount of success in business that makes up for being a failure at your house, period. Like with your kids, with your wife, with relationships and friends, like you can be the Bill Gates rich people kill themselves all the time, dude, because they don't have meaning. They don't have purpose. They don't have relationship because their business was their identity. And that's just like, it's not a good place to be Learn from their mistakes. Yeah. So take me back. I, I totally agree. Take me back to, you're kind of in this, in this transition point where you realize, all right, you know, this, this cleaning business is great active income and I'm, I'm not spending a ton of hours, but I am one person removed and I'm I kind of feeling like I'm on the hamster wheel. I'm not really building assets. What was that transition period like? Because I think the way that I hear it from most people, it can seem like it's a week, right? Or a day. Mm, yeah. And and you pivot. Can you talk about like that period of, of how long that was? Yeah. So I started, our son was born in March of 2019. I started marketing in probably june of 2019 like just i was like okay read it in the book i'm doing it and then it took me and all the while i kind of had two plans in motion so to speak so it was create this business and make it sellable so we already had really well-defined processes but i wanted to get them extra dialed in i wanted to tighten our profit margins things like that to get a higher multiple when we sold the business and so these kind of two parallel tracks are running at the same time was shore up this business to get it ready to sell, start this business and get proof of concept. And from when I started marketing in June, let's say of 2019, it took me until March of the next year to get my first house under contract. And as soon as we closed that first house, we made like 50,000 bucks in that first house. And I was like, what the crap? Like I just had to manage 13 people and like literally put up with crap the last year to make double what I just made in one deal. And I was like, burn the boats, like I'm selling this thing. And you, so you made we made 50K on your first deal. 
Oh, dude, it was a whole tail. Yeah. It oh, was wow. So nice, dude. And I Holy probably crap. got spoiled. Like, if it was like a little $5,000 fee or something, but it was beautiful. And once I had, dude, for me, proof of concept, like, my team probably gets sick of me saying this, but like, if there is proof of concept for anything, we can do it. Period. If somebody has done it before, we can do it. We just emulate and replicate. But yeah, once I had that first deal, it took me nine months to get that first deal. And then, I think I, at that point, like I just knew it was going to happen already. And so I think I had been marketing my business for like maybe a month or two already at that point. And we had helped like five or six other people start janitorial companies by like selling them packages of accounts and giving them training and helping them figure out how to run a business. And I started advertising our business for sale on a guy that we had already sold a package of accounts. Uh, accounts to and helped him start his own. He was like, Hey dude, don't go public with this. I'll buy it. Like, just tell me what you guys are looking for and I'll buy it. And I was like, okay. And I named what I thought was fair, which sucked. Cause when we got a business appraisal, it came in like 30% higher than what I told him. <laughs> what I mean, it's, and it's okay. It's not the end of the world. It works. But, um, so the whole transition was probably, I don't know, about a year. It also, the very first contract I ever got was the day I remember I got the contract signed and I went home and I turned on the news and Trump was like, close the borders. Like the Chinese virus is invaded. And, <laughs> and I was like, well, this sucks. Like I just wanted to start this new business model. And we had also been in the longest period of economic expansion in the U S history. And so I was like, well, this is going to tip us into a recession. And so I had all those anxieties. Everybody do when COVID first hit, it's like, okay, we're all dead. Everything's going to shut down. Kill me now. And that ended up being rocket fuel for, real estate. So it was like a year long transition, but because of COVID, the small business administration like paused all of their new acquisition loans and like it yeah. just paused. And so it delayed our company selling for like six months, which sucked. Yeah. I had a fourplex in 2019 that I had literally signed the closing documents for and sent my wire for the purchase of, and literally the next day, closing day, the lender goes, Sorry, we know that every, all parties have signed, but we're just not going to send the wire because of COVID. What? And oh I'm my like, gosh. I'm like, is that legal? Because I just signed all these. <laughs> so thankfully, the seller was this really chill, tired landlord, just slumlord that he didn't really care. So we were able to find another lender and he gave me more time. But like, yeah, it almost, wow. cost, almost cost us a deal. But all kinds of that stuff were happening during COVID. People were like, all right. Like this is the next 2008. I remember mm -hmm. people saying, "Oh yeah, that, right." I remember telling people that, like, we've been on the longest stretch of expansion, but and stuff's coming down. And yeah, man, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. supply and demand, right? I mean, you look at in your market what's going on. You're in Quarter Lane, Spokane. What what is it like yeah. right now during the last couple of years? Did we, so we have some of the lowest record inventory we've ever had. And I mean, it's, it's definitely slowed interest rates have um, definitely affected that, but it still at the end of the day comes down to supply and demand. If you have the only house available in a town, it's going to go for $10 million, whatever it sh shouldn't go for. Cause you're the only house. Yeah. And we're not in that much of an exaggerated example from that. We have weeks of inventory. I mean, it's just not a lot. So for those for those listeners that aren't really aware of like the roller coaster that is Idaho or really Denver West markets in the last three years, can you paint a picture of what that has looked like? Yeah, have Coeur you ever Spokane? seen like the rocket ships that go up and then just explode <laughs> and everything comes back down really quickly? 
we took off relatively quickly. We, I'm not kidding, homes that we were buying in 2000, or like homes that people were buying in 2019 and 20, like right as COVID were hitting, doubled in value in a year and a half. Like it was just like, dude, it was almost like, it was so fun at this one point because you were like, I'll buy anything because next month it's going to be worth $30,000 more. <laughs> and that worked for a little bit, covered a lot of errors. But yeah, we starting last summer got a little bit of a reality check and it came in the form of about 25 to 30% depreciation <laughs> over like a five month period. But it seemed like it hit a lot quicker than that. It was just, you looked back five months later and you're like, oh crap, like that started five months ago. And I didn't really realize it until two months ago. And so it felt like it went really fast. But I think I heard you say this one time that recessions take the elevator down and the stairs back up or somebody said, I thought it was you, but yeah, we went I'll down. Take, I'll quick. take the credit. <laughs> yeah. But we came down pretty quick, like you guys and the Phoenixes and it sucked. Yeah. So let's talk about maybe personal growth as a leader in times of adversity like that. Mm -hmm. What did you find to be successful in that time period? Because I don't, I don't know about you, but I know, I know for a fact in our market and a couple other people that I've talked to in these in these Denver West markets that got hit pretty hard in the last year and a half with interest rates yeah. doubling, right? Yeah. A lot of their competition completely went away, or, yeah. or they either went out of business or they went to other markets. Just on the on personally for you what what was that like yeah and it was it was interesting because when covid first hit i still had the janitorial company and there was a bunch of businesses that couldn't go to work and stuff like that and so i had had a little dose of that as we were selling our company for about six months i had to be that constant kind of north star and then when stuff got dicey last year with stuff coming down and I come from a prior military background so I was an NCO in the army and I just I've just always related it to like my staff like, if we're going to charge up that hill and our commander is like, mm, I don't know how I feel about this. Like, they've got real bullets and we might not make it back. I'd be like, I'm not following you. Like, you yeah. go up the hill. But there's guys that I had served under that, dude, I don't, I do not care if we went to face the entire Russian army. If they said it with confidence, like, we're going to go kick their butts and come back and be home for dinner. I'd be like, let's go. And so that's kind of the mentality I've always adopted with leadership. It does not matter how bad you think it gets. You are always, always telling your people like, you guys, people have been through this before. This is actually nothing. We have the smartest team around. We have the hardest working team around. We're going to kill it in this. Like what everybody else sees as a challenge, that's just an opportunity in disguise. And it's really cool to look back, you know, over a year later since the market's come down. And I can tell my team, like, you guys remember when it got like dicey and we're like, oh, what's going on with the market? And I was like, pour gas on the fire. Let's do this. 85% of our competitors are not around now. And we are, and we swallowed all their volume. And it, oh man, dude, does that inflate your guys's team? Like they see what was able to, they have that proof of concept now that like when crap hits the fan, we just charge into it. And that's just, I've just always been in that mentality. Like if you're going to face a storm, run into it, like just get it. But. What what do you think from the cleaning business helped or may, and maybe it was everything I, I I don't know I've only ever done engineering and real estate so what was it that you took from just being a business owner before that you were able to apply into into real estate that helped it, and it doesn't seem like there'd be that much that's transferable very very different industries one's not really sales it's more service ours is more sales yep. but 
systems and processes were really, really heavy. And it sounds so weird because like a system or process for cleaning a building, there really is a right way that is efficient and saves time and productivity and a wrong way that costs you time and productivity. And so we had checklists for everything. Like, did you do this at the end of the night? Did you put away the cord in this way? We did quality control checks to make sure that measures and standards were being upheld. And a lot of those things transferred. So just understanding. And over the course of the seven years that we had the business, we got to employ over 50 people because it's a fairly high turnover in our industry or Mm. in that industry. And so you really get to know people. And we did have to have a component of sales and marketing and building a brand. And a lot of those things kind of transferred. Like I knew roughly how to send the mailer. And I knew that you had to have a target that you wanted for your client and that you had to send the right message at the right time to the right individual to get the desired response. And so aspects transferred, very, very different, much bigger learning curve when I came into real estate. But Yeah. So you took quite a few lumps in hiring then, at hiring and firing. Like this is this is the skill that I think really sets you up to build a business that serves you instead of just creating a high paying job for yourself. It sounds like you, can you talk about your experience in in hiring for the cleaning business and how that set you up for success now? Yeah. And dude, they are polar opposites of what I do now. Like I learned a lot of what not to do in the janitorial company because we made so many mistakes and almost a full-time job for me right now is understanding how to hire recruit, train, and onboard better. I'm like, we're pouring a ton of money and resources into that. But like similar to sales, we would just have a funnel that we would do for marketing for employees. One of the things that I've always known we had to do to set ourselves apart is you have to have a why for your company. And dude, it's been so many years, but I'm trying to remember what our mission statement Oh, our mission statement for the janitorial company was taking care of the people that take care of your building. And so like we had built into that company that our priority was to take care of our employees and to create an atmosphere that was very conducive for their own personal growth. And so we've always been an employee forward company. We were able to recruit and train and retain people a lot better and longer than our competitors because we had a compelling why. And that compelling why dictated a lot of how we handled interactions and generosity with employees and benefits we gave to other companies and stuff like that. And so a lot of that has transferred, but dude, what I know now about like predictive index tests and cognitive tests and building out job descriptions. And it's just, it's so fun. And like, I feel like you almost need a PhD in hiring to like be really good at it. It's so much information, dude. Yeah, I think once once you treat your hiring process like your lead generation, yeah, that's when you start to see the results. And yeah. I think I, I know speaking for myself, like coming from a W two job, yeah, I I didn't know anything about hiring. I thought that that was like that's an HR thing, mm-hmm. and and in my head, I was, I mean, no offense, but. I, I always felt like HR people were just the dumbest at the company because they like did, they just couldn't figure things out. And yeah. So <laughs> I'm sitting here like, oh, HR handles that. I'm like, how the hell does HR like? And it's not HR. It's actually a recruiter who should be your best salesperson. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. On the team. So that's a mindset shift in and of itself. But mm-hmm. when you talk about aligning that vision with the employees, that I think is gold because. 
having that aligned vision is what really attracts people. Not everybody is actually motivated by money or, yeah. you know, time freedom or, or location freedom, right? They're really mm -hmm. aligned to having that. Why? What are some ways that you guys actually convey that, like in the interview process to, to make sure you're a cultural fit? And take this with a grain of salt because I'm getting better at this, but we've had a lot of trial and error. But like one of the things that we're implementing right now, so we've been doing predictive index hiring. So those assessments that you take yeah. um, through, I think it's predictiveindex.com, but they're unbelievably accurate for people. And so we build out the job descriptions and it's got the data points that says like, hey, this personality type probably wouldn't thrive or would thrive in these roles. And what we do literally in the interviews is I'll sit down, the people that made it all, we make our funnel really hard to get through. But the last position we <clears throat> we're hiring for right now, we've had 240 people apply at this point, And we've had about 25 go all the way through the process. So it's like 10%, 8-10%. But those people have done enough front-loaded work to let me know if they'd be a good fit or not. And so we'll sit down in the interview and I have their personality assessment in front of me. And I'll say this position, like your role in this is going to require you to, we've only invited people to the interview that let's say for this position, they need a really driving factor. Like they want things done yesterday and they've got a high attention to detail. They're not a very social person and they're very, they take a lot of initiative. We literally tell them what their personality test said to us. And so we, we say like, hey, based on your results, like your personality is one that is really attentive to detail and needs kind of that, that chaos and that constant change. This is exactly what that role is. And it, your personality test said that like, you really aren't a super social person. We don't have you talking to a lot of people. Like this is very much, we're gonna give you direction and, and you're gonna figure out a lot of this stuff on your own because your personality type said that you thrive in those type of environments. And then you get done with it and the people are just like, Oh my gosh, like that sounds like a dream job for me. And we go so in depth into the interview process about what they will and won't be doing according to their personality type, their cognitive scores, what we need for their role. We want those people leaving. Like, it's crazy, man. We've had people go through the interview process and they're like, I was not even looking for a job. I want your job. Like, I do not want to work for somebody else. Yeah. I want to work for you guys' company. And those are the type of people that you want on your team. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and, you know, the hard truth is the best talent are not looking for a job, right? They're already yeah. employed. Yeah. So that's why referrals and social media and, and getting kind of word of mouth type of sources to actually source this talent is going to move the needle far more. We use Wise Hire or LinkedIn or yeah. wherever you're, or Indeed or any of these job boards. Yeah. They're a tool, but you know, they're not going to be as qualified. It's almost like inbound versus outbound leads, right? It's a good, really good description. Do you guys do like the cognitive tests and stuff for your employees? Oh yeah. Potential we, hires, yeah. We, so we, we just started about, honestly, like three or four months ago. We didn't yeah. before. And then I, I had so many people in Collective Genius and our mastermind say, dude, you're, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And then when I got them, I, I, it made so much sense. Uh -huh. I was like, oh, that's why, you know, with that person, we have to tell them six times for them to get it. And yes. with that person, we have to tell them once they go fail and then they just learn and then they never make the same mistake twice.
Dude, oh. it's like cheating the system. When you have yeah. somebody take a cognitive test, like I cannot tell you out of the 240 people that applied, we had people that their personality types were dead on. They had amazing experience and then an extremely low cognitive score, which for anyone that's listening, it's, it's think about it as like RAM on a computer. It's just how quickly people process and problem solve. It's not intelligence. And it's like, but I'm not going to hire you because I'm going to have to tell you four times a day, every single day, how to do the thing that this person, I just have to tell once and they'll get it done. And that's the type of person that I need in a very fast moving organization. Yeah, no, I, I totally love that. What you talked about, or we talked about, there's levels to this. And let's fast forward to where you're at now. What does the team look like? What is the vision for the next year of how many deals, average size per deal, any, anything you want to share yeah. on that? Yeah, so, dude, I think we're at 12 people total now. We have a, a transaction coordinator that's rotating out, and we're not immediately replacing her because we want to kind of build out that department and train somebody in a little bit different way before we bring somebody on. But I think we're at a staff of 12 right now, and it's we have two unbelievably awesome virtual assistants in the Philippines. They're like family to us. Then we have an operations manager. And I'll kind of preface this too by saying a year ago, our staff was half of what it is now. So we've had, we've been hiring a person like every six to eight weeks for a year and it's draining, but it's very worthwhile. So we've got our, our transaction coordinator, operations manager, a full-time dispositions manager, a project manager, two acquisitions people, a relationship manager, and two lead managers and myself. And so that's kind of the the team as it sits now, I'm in the process of hiring an executive assistant for anybody that feels confident enough to take that risk, uh, or I mean job on. <laughs> and then we're probably going to be hiring like a junior project manager because we've been running into some issues where we don't have enough. We're paying like 5,000 bucks a month just in home inspections. And it's like, well, we could hire somebody to do those and they would have like 30 extra hours a week to work for us and do that stuff. And where we're looking at going is pretty fun because right now, like I think four months, we've been averaging about 20, like 18 to 20 transactions a month. And that was just with our one acquisitions person and then some kind of inside sales roles between Dispo and our relationship manager. But we're, we have already hired and trained and he's going to start running appointments in about a week, second acquisitions guy. And so we should be able to do 20 to 25, maybe a little bit more than that, transactions a month consistently next year. And so we should, which will be explosive growth for us because we're only going to do about 120 transactions this year. And I think we should do closer to 200 next year. Definitely want to get into like land development and doing some of that. That was actually originally how we met was through that. Yeah, Probably end up doing some private money lending. We're going to take property management in-house, I think at some point when we get that to that size. So yeah, just kind of adding auxiliary arms onto the business and then just continue to just go deeper into what we're currently doing and just add some fun stuff like land development. And in this current market environment, how much are you flipping versus wholesaling? We looked at the numbers the other day. So out of 105 properties we've done this year already, we wholesaled about 60 and flipped, or, or I say took title to because it was either a flip or we flipped it and then kept it and it was a rental. But sure. it's the same process for each one. You still have to take it, own it, rehab it. And so we did about 45, I think, of the flips. And we've got probably, I don't know, seven or eight more that we'll take title to. So we'll flip, rehab like 55 maybe this year. Wow. And then wholesale okay. 70. That's a lot for one project manager. 
Yeah, I mean, he's a stud. He can he can manage 12 at a time. And we you typically will have a house in inventory for two, three months before it sells. And so he's 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 usually got about eight to 10, sometimes 12 active projects at once. Okay. And you guys have still been able to keep good margins on a lot of these flips, even in kind of a, a downward type of market. I wish you asked me that question a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, by and large, um, but we did some bad buys over the last few months where we'll still make money on them, but minimal. I mean, 10, 20, 30,000 when we were looking at making 60 or something. And we blew through some rehab budgets and then also had depreciation of prices that came down at the same time, which those combination of things are just kind of crummy. And I don't know if I have enough risk tolerance to be like, oh, we'll just hold on to it for spring because... We're never guaranteed stuff's going to be much. I say we're never guaranteed. It's always better in the spring here, but I just don't know if I can. <laughs> I don't know if I have that risk. I'm like, it's done. Just put it on the market. Maybe we'll get what we want for it. If not, we can hold on to it. So, Yeah, I think that's that teeter-totter is like, honestly, one of the biggest challenges as an owner of a real estate business, right? Is mm -hmm. how much inventory do you want to be holding at any one given time? Yeah. And how much liquidity do you want to keep? Because a 30K wholesale or a 65K flip profit. Sometimes the flip is even more. It can be like 80 or 85. That's kind of yeah. roughly the ratio that we deal with, right? Same. It's a little over double. Yeah. But for the time, is that, do you guys have a formula that you use? Is it a feel thing? How do you determine what's a wholesale and what's a flip? <laughs> People ask me this all the time. And I'm like, <laughs> if you could picture like, you know, when private eyes have like their cork board and they've got like a photo of something and then like a million strings of yarn going to like the associates and stuff, that's got to be pretty close to what our process looks like. Dude, there's so many factors that go into it. So we have a really big monthly overhead, like a couple hundred thousand dollars usually. And so we usually try and wholesale up to our overhead amount. And then anything above that, we will flip. I say that with like 10 caveats to if we can pull all of our own money out of a project and be into it for no money or refinance and pull money out, that's a rental hands down every single day. Yeah. And then we also start to cross thresholds like, well, is our project manager at capacity right now? If he is, we're not taking any flips. If we are, there's got to be so much meat on the bone that they could sit for three months before we even touch them. Market conditions play into it our balance sheet, like we'll get up to times where we've got 25 houses on our books and we're like, let's take off the gas a little bit. There's so many things that go into it. One of the cool things, we're looking at bringing on Marcus Krigler, who's a financial guy and collective genius. And he does our, our books and taxes and he's a phenomenal resource, but we're looking at taking him on as a fractional CFO for next year. Because I have a pretty rudimentary understanding of like balance sheet and cash flow. I'm like, just show me my bank and a P&L. Like, are we okay? And it's one of those like just fly by to see my pants things, which is when your overhead is a couple hundred thousand dollars a month, like you owe it to your team to be more educated than I am. And, and so we're looking at bringing on, because it's cool, man. He can tell me, hey, in three months, are you going to have extra money that you need to redeploy? Or are you going to need to wholesale deals now? Because you're going to need the money in three months. And I don't have that foresight right now. And I need that foresight. And so we're going to bring on a lot better ability to have more accurate data to make better decisions. And I just don't know how to do that at this point. And so we're bringing on a guy, hopefully, to do that. But... Yeah, that is an example of pulling a lever that can probably 2x your profit margin that you don't really even have. You can't see yeah. 
right? It's not yeah. as tangible as a marketing channel where like, who are ROIs better on this channel this month? So let's yeah. put let's put more than of that budget over to over here. It's it doesn't work like that. Being able to manage that risk and be proactive about money, right? Yeah. To know how much can I pour into marketing right now to get yeah. a return later? That stuff is incredibly valuable. That is leveling up for sure to a different level in business and yeah. potentially even a, a sellable business. I don't know if you've thought about what like a 10-year vision looks like or beyond it. Are you guys building to to sell or what does that look like? Yeah. Like, I think I could tell you where I'm going to date night next week, but past that, <laughs> not so much. And it goes back to that quote, like building something that you enjoy coming to. Those two things are intertwined. A business that I want to do the rest of my life is a sellable business. So I'm going to make it sellable regardless of whether that's an exit or not. To be honest, I have no intention ever of selling this business because it, one, is ridiculously fun. I love the people I work with and it, like, where else can I just like pick up 20, 30 houses a year for rentals? Nowhere. <laughs> like that, I don't care how much money I, I could sell it for $20 million and I wouldn't be able to buy 20 or 30 properties a year and cash out of, like, I just couldn't. But, but it is cool. Like having somebody like a Marcus or a CFO that can make those financial decisions and just the stuff when you talk to somebody that is at that level, like he's looked at stuff and he's like, okay, you know, let's look at your return on people. And I'm like, Marcus, what the heck? What are you talking about? That's not quantifiable. And he's like, yeah, it is. Let's look at the amount of salary that you're paying them and the amount of money you're making. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's like a, a, a thing. But he'll yeah. take a look at these and be like, man, you could like, you could afford one or two more hires and it would give you this much more. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't know that. That's cool to know. He's just, he sees numbers in like spectrums I didn't even know existed that are crazy and they make it a sellable business, which is cool. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because assets are not always in the form of property. They're in the form of people, right? I can They're tell most you most important assets. Absolutely. I can tell you a good salesperson on our team can generate anywhere from 500K to a million dollars and maybe even exceed a million dollars annually. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Just, just one good person. And so yeah. when you think about that, it's like that changes things a little bit about how you allocate money, right? Because Absolutely. You, buy, you buy a rental property, you get cash flow, you get all these things that real estate provides, or you could hire a person. Yeah. And what does that make you? I totally agree. Looking at it through that lens is a, yeah. is a total game changer. There was a book that I just read by Trey Taylor, maybe is his last name. It's called The CEO Only Does Three Things. And they focus yep. on people, culture, and numbers. And he listed a study that they did in there. And it said that they categorize employees, A, B, and C. And A employees are employees that will typically have about 70% more productivity than a B or a C employee. And But his thing that he talked about was a study said that in order to attract A players to your company, you typically have to pay about 20% more than what's average of the salary for that industry, for that role. But you get 70% higher results. And I was just like, yeah, I'm a proponent that you cannot pay people enough if they are phenomenal at what they do. But their ROI is unbelievable at that point. It's just worth it to pay them more. So we do. <laughs> it's yeah. just, it, it just makes sense. The numbers are there. Yeah, totally. And you go through, I mean, if you factor in 
turnover of hiring a C or B player, right? Mm -hmm. Plus the amount of time that it's going to take to train them and yeah. to like the cog score that we talked about and teach them things over and over and over again. Yeah. Plus potentially also lose them quicker because they're not making as much money or maybe getting as many commissions as they think they should. It just sets mm -hmm. them up for failure altogether. And you get that A player where the stars align and it's yeah. just magic. For those of you that are listening that don't even have your first hire, you get one person in the right seat. Like every time you get an A player in a seat, you can 2X your business that day just from that decision. It's unreal. And I think in that same book, he was talking about, they did this huge study and on average, I think it's the potential loss of income that a business experiences when they hire, when they have to let somebody go and start the process over is usually equivalent to what that person's annual salary was. So if you're looking at hiring a $60,000 person and they didn't work out, you prop in it. What a lot of us don't, myself included, didn't or don't understand is it's not like, oh, now that salesperson isn't going in out and getting contracts. It's like, yes, but they are linked to your disposition department, your project management department, your transaction coordinator. Everybody's job is impacted by a negative player. And it had another quote that a B player and C player on average pull down productivity of A players by like 30%. And so you just can't have them on the team, like period. You just can't. I'm so glad you brought that up. I can honestly say a majority of our problems that happen on a day-to-day -day basis are because we didn't either set the right expectations with a seller on a seller appointment or mm -hmm. we didn't get the contracted price low enough. Yeah. Like if you yeah. do just do those two things on the front end, everyone's lives are way easier. And that's how, honestly, oh that's gosh. how every organization works. Like, you know, my wife works in tech and I have some other friends that are in tech and, and I hear stories all the time about how the salespeople are like making promises and selling a product that doesn't exist yet because they have yeah. to keep the revenue coming while engineering yeah. like hasn't made the product yet. Yeah. And, and they're selling a lot of false promises Yeah, and they hope that those like expectations intersect with like the delivery of the product. Mm -hmm. And man, honestly, like you're, you're on borrowed time if you're operating like that unless your product is just so exceptional that it yeah. kicks everybody else's ass. Um, yeah. Okay. But anyways, bringing this back to real estate, I, I wanted to ask you that 200K marketing, or you said 200K overhead a month. Yeah, it's about that per month. Okay. Wh how much of that is marketing? It'll fluctuate between 60 to 100K a month. Like if we spend 100K in marketing, we'll hit 200,000 overhead that month. But yeah. I think on average, we're probably at like 70 a month for just marketing. We're about to increase that because we just started in order to get more appointments for our second acquisitions person. We just did a big mail, big mail campaign, which is pretty cool. I'm excited to get more leads in, but it probably averages 70. If we have to buy a big package of like data or something, could fluctuate 20, 30,000 bucks in a month. So for, for the listeners out there, and obviously this depends on the market, that's a pretty substantial marketing budget. Or, I mean, compared to some of the whales in our mastermind, not as much, but yeah. there's levels to this, right? What Totally. What are your top marketing channels right now? What do, you, what do you like? We don't have any that are like head and shoulders above another one, but because we're on so many marketing channels, they all honestly perform fairly on par with each other. We do by and large just all outbound, or excuse me, inbound mass media. So we pay to make our phone ring. So it's TV, mail, PPC, 
radio ads, realtor referrals, Facebook ads, things like that. There isn't one that I think I like more than the other because they all produce about similar results. One thing I don't like about mail is you get dumb, like, take me off your list, you commie. And it's like, did you call Arby's and like complain about their coupons? Just throw it away. We just get dumb calls. And like, I don't like having to maintain a do not mail list. Like, it's just a pain in the butt. But I mean, we get the same crap with TV. I unfortunately am the person on our TV advertisement. And we have people call in like, I don't know who you guys hired, but he's a skeletally thin neo-Nazi looking man. And you should find, you're going to get that dumb stuff with like all advertising, but at least with like radio or TV or Google ads, stuff like that, there's just no list management. And I'm a pretty dumb person when it comes to like managing lists. I don't have a good proven system for it yet and so i just kind of don't do it people will be like don't mail me again i'm like okay we'll try <laughs> like please just throw it away because i'm not gonna put you on a list but they all perform really well especially when you have all of them going at once and we've been through these weird iterations where like we couldn't figure out how to make tv work or radio and so we and we didn't have a very strong online presence when you have all of it going you just get this beautiful harmonious effect but when you have one that's really not strong it can bring down all the others and so it's just been three years of just split testing and you know we're on our fifth company with ppc and this is the first one that's provided an roi for us but we lost a ton of money on tv before we figured it out we pulled off of it like four times because we'd lose money but as all our presence has grown across all channels, it kind of floats the rest of the other boats, so to speak. And so it's making it a little bit easier. But, Got it. Okay. And you guys, that gives you, that helps out your organic traffic too, right? Because yeah. people are searching you more. And so yeah. all these other, all these channels really complement each other and gives you that brand awareness. Yeah. I was going to say, you just learn dumb stuff throughout the, like, you, it's just a trial and error thing. We lost a deal last summer because a guy heard our radio ad, Googled us, clicked on the first ad he saw, went under contract with them thinking it was our company. And he called us like four days later and he's like, hey, were you guys out to my house? I'm like, nope, first time we've ever talked to you. He's like, well, can you come out here? I think I signed a contract, but it must not be with you guys. I know the people he signed a contract with and it was like a $30,000 deal that we missed. So like now we pay to rank if somebody searches our business name, now we pay to rank at the top. Just dumb stuff like that. Like you learn through trial and error, losing potential money or losing actual money. So, yeah, you've never had outbound. Or... No, our first like year was predominantly outbound um, texting. Our first like three deals were texting, and I just didn't like it. Okay, so you, it's pretty rare that I see you know in the mastermind as well, like that you see somebody do predominantly, excuse me, inbound from the start. Mm -hmm. What made you steer in that direction? Because it, it's intimidating for a lot of people, right? The cost is high oh, yeah. and you kind of hope you're betting on yourself, really, that you yeah. have the ability to close. Yeah. I think it was just the type of company I wanted to build versus the type of marketing that was going to take me there. When I say that, dude, I remember we were doing a texting campaign one day and a guy texts back and he's like, go sit on a glass dildo. And I was just like, what? Like, those are the types of responses you get texting people. If somebody calls your TV ad, they might insult your looks, but very, very minimally. Like most people are like, hey, can you help me solve a could, problem? They could not compliment jump off you. The ridge. 
Yeah, yeah. I, rare. I don't think that's happened. No, I had cuter than all get out from an elderly woman. That there was like the go. highlight of my month. But I think she had cataracts or something. But <laughs> yeah, dude, we were just texting tens of thousands of people a month and it was bringing in money. I just didn't like how it made me feel. I feel like I was bugging people, invading their privacy. When I get those political texts, I'm like, I am on the do not call list. Like, what? Send me your address. And I'm like, man, I've got to be like making other people feel like that. And there's nothing wrong with it. It just, I just didn't like it. Like, it's totally legal. It's like, there's nothing wrong with that. I just, I wanted to try something else. And by God's grace, we're the first people, like the very first outbound we tried was radio at the time. It since has like, the ROI has drastically gone down for us. We're on four or five times the amount of stations to get the same amount of volume we were on our first year. Just because it got competitive, it got extremely expensive, but it was crazy fun in the beginning because we were spending like six grand a month pulling three contracts out a month and they were whammy contracts yeah. and no one else was doing it. And I'm like, well, this is stinking cool. And so when we kind of had that taste, I'm like, what other channels are out there like that? And we just started trying everything until we found what we liked and what we didn't like. And we have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on campaigns or channels that just didn't perform. We just cut them, didn't like them. Yeah. So us too, there's definitely an evolution to that. I think as your marketing budget and your team grows, and quite honestly, like the amount of backlog that outbound channels can cause in your CRM yeah. and with your team's capacity, Yeah. in time, it costs you significantly more. Yeah, and so yeah. to run a more efficient, and long-term profitable organization, you will eventually switch to exclusively inbound. So, yeah. And because we run the largest real estate investment meetup group here. And like, I think last month we, we did like an intro to wholesaling class. And a large part of that was like marketing and what, and kind of the progression I suggested people take that was similar to ours. And we'll have people come up to us and they're like, what radio station or what TV or like, how should I start doing my, my Google ads? And I'm like, how many contracts have you got? And they're like, none. How many sellers have you talked to? None. I'm like, then do none of those things. Like you need to, there's a reason Nike doesn't sponsor like high school athletes. They have not put in the reps. We, by God's grace, had big cash reserves. We could take tens of thousands of dollars in losses in a month if we didn't have the right systems in place. And I'm like, if you don't know how to talk to a seller, you don't have a good follow-up, you don't have a good CRM, like if you don't have those things in place, you will literally burn all of your marketing dollars on yeah. qualified leads that you don't know how to handle. And so it's just, I can't like morally tell somebody to just start out doing those things. I didn't do it that way. I put in the reps and talked to hundreds of sellers, went on probably hundreds of appointments before we like really invested the money into inbound marketing. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the the meetup and the Facebook group y'all started because that's one of those brand awareness things, right? Those yeah. hidden benefits where people, they see you on TV, they see you on radio, they see you active in the community at events, right? Yeah. You're on these other inbound channels. People can look you up. It's very transparent. And then now all of a sudden, talk to me about the, the Facebook group and what prompted that to start and now what kind of following and, and impact that has. 
Yeah, we had a couple Facebook groups in our area for real estate investors and they were just flat, man. The people didn't maintain them. Like there's nothing, they're pointless. And so we are like, we, it's a big passion of ours to educate people to do what we're doing. There's tens of thousands of houses in our area that need rehabbing and we'll do a couple hundred a year. Like there, there's enough to go around, more than enough. And so we just wanted to have a bigger impact and be a bigger blessing. And so we started the real estate investment meetup. And one of the ways that we wanted to get the word out was through Facebook because we're not going to mail everybody and be like, come to the meetup. And so we just started hosting that group and we just started providing value, telling people what we were doing and teaching them. And the group is specifically catered to like, if you need a contractor, there's tons of them in this group. If you need a private money lender, there's tons of them in this group. If you, all of our contracts, we have like videos on education, like how to talk to sellers, how to find leads. Those are all resources in the group. And so it was just an easy collective place to put it all and everyone's on social media. So we just created the group. And what was the why behind it? Why did you guys want to do the meetup? We just want to educate people. Whether that benefited our business or not, I believe that we should be stewards of what we've been given. And if our vision as a company is to impact our city and like transform it, we need partners to do that. It's too slow of a process with just us doing it. And so we started the meetup in an effort to teach people what we had learned. Like, I, I'm not kidding when I say I have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars just on marketing channels that didn't work, not to mention losses on flips. Like if I could, it, oh my gosh, man, if somebody was around to teach me in the beginning, I was like, hey, Chad, don't hire this type of contractor or don't put this type of flooring in a house or you're going to want to stay away from this type of house. Dude, it could have saved me hundreds of thousands of dollars because that's what it's cost us but we just wanted to be there for people like everyone needs mentors man i have lots of coaches and mentors and it has to kind of have that trickle down effect like you can't you have to be outpouring what is being important to you yeah what do you think has been your biggest learning lesson in the business in the last six months Ooh, that's a uh, really good question in the last six months the biggest learning thing honestly for me has been the hiring we have a phenomenal consulting company we work with sharper process and one of the cool things is we pay for like coo type coaching on a weekly basis i get on with a gal named amanda dean and she's phenomenal and i just get to pick her brain and she was a coo of a company doing two to four hundred houses a year for a decade so like anything i could ever hope to know <laughs> she'll forget more than i could ever hope to know like she's just a genius and I can just come to her and be like, hey, I'm thinking about hiring this position. Like, what should I look out for? Can you train me in how to read these assessments and these scores better so that I make good hires? And it's just been because we've grown and because I'm the person that does the hiring and the training and the recruiting and stuff like that. It's just been the biggest learning curve for me, making sure that I have heavily invested into that because I owe it also to our team. We have an unbelievable team. And I have to bring in people at or above their level. I cannot bring in somebody on the team that will bring the team down. And we protect our company culture at all costs. I don't care how successful you are. If you violate our culture, you're off our team. And so that's been the biggest learning curve by and large is just how do I get better at hiring so I don't make mistakes with it? And I'll, I'll make mistakes, but make less mistakes. Yeah, I love that. And I think growing a successful business a lot of times is how fast. Can you learn from the failures and from the mistakes? Can you front yeah. load as many mistakes as possible in the beginning yeah. and then reap the benefits of those 
I see a lot of people making mistakes where they don't fail often enough. Mm. And instead, they really just stifle their growth because they can't, it takes them too long to reload and to actually make the benefit from yeah. those failures to get to the next thing. It's like quicksand, right? Yeah. Um, you'd rather sink a lot really fast, climb yourself out, stand up before you, you face the next thing. Yeah. And it, like when we hire and onboard people, I'm, I'm very open and honest with them. I tell them I, I've made a lot of mistakes in this business and I fully expect you to make the same mistakes. Like I want you to lose me a little bit of money. If not, you are not taking enough action for my preference. Like you need to have a bent towards action because we swing for the fences every time and nine times out of 10, we connect and it's amazing but you need to swing for the fences. I can absorb the one in 10 loss if we have nine out of 10 that are phenomenal or even decent. Like, you, But you have to take those chances and those risks. And I think when you give people that freedom to where they're like, my boss just told me I could lose them money. It's like they actually trust the process and they trust themselves to go out and perform at a level that I don't think you would see if you didn't give them that level of like, it's okay. You're going to crash and burn on some of these and I'm going to, eat money as a result of that that's okay i know it's going to happen i expect that let's just learn from it and so yeah that is spot on and i think through that you're going to create a culture where it's okay to fail and you're also going to create a culture where there's a level of accountability yeah. as well because people yeah. have the freedom to fail yeah so zooming out chad what would you consider yourself a business addict gosh my wife and i probably have different answers to that question <laughs> Yeah, I'm probably addicted. I love growing this business. It's so fun. In my spare time, I'm just watching videos about how to be more productive, how to do something better. Collective Genius has their plethora of videos on how to do any aspect of this business better. And I would. It's just fun, man. Like, why wouldn't you? Yeah. And granted, like, I have amazing time with family and stuff like that. But any downtime I have is being spent with my family, being spent with Lord, or being spent like learning about how to do what I'm doing better because everyone benefits when I get better. So yeah, the, the reason I ask is like big picture, right? A lot of people start off and they're like, this is my financial freedom number, mm -hmm. or this is my passive income number. And once I get to that, then I'm going to do this. And the problem at the same time that I see with that is some people just move the goalposts oh, further, yeah. right? 100%. And they just move their number up and move their number up and move their number up. And it's like, you're not really being honest with yourself. Like if you love the game, just play yeah. the game infinitely, totally. right? Totally. Um, do you feel like you have a number and then you'll do something else? Or is this just what you want to do for the future? We don't really have a number. Like there's no, like when I get a hundred doors, I'm out or anything like that. And I've kind of always told our team, like we'll set goals, but like my vision for this company is to fall in love with the process. Like as long as we're always getting better at the process, the goal is a natural result of that. We'll hit our numbers. We'll do, if we can get our processes to a point where we have zero error in any process, we have maximized. I don't care what the number at the end, that's the max amount of whatever we could have hit that we will hit. And so though our consulting company like does set goals for us and it's great, it all trickles down to how do we make the process better at the end of the day. And so I don't have a goal, dude, because like when we first started out, I remember meeting with the company in our area well, was three years ago that was the biggest volume buyer in our area and had been for years. They're called Tap Properties. And they flipped like 25, 30 homes a year. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, if I could do like two or three homes a year, 
that's insane. We did 20 homes last month. And I'm like, okay, what I thought was possible, like we blew that out of the water. Now I'm like, what is possible? Can we do 400 homes a year? And I don't know, through process refinement and loving what we do, we'll see what we can accomplish. Right on, man. No, I love that. My last question for you, what's a tangible thing about your company culture that's like your favorite that would be super helpful in other organizations? Not everybody can fit a ping pong table, so I don't know if I can say that, but dude, it's so, it's so fun. I have so much fun. I'm going to play ping pong right after this. But I think a tangible thing in the company culture is we're just super generous to our people and we're always trying to praise what we value. And so like this week we gave out a couple massages, like gift cards for massages to some of our, our female staff that just did phenomenal on the phones and they hit goals and we just give away a ton of stuff. Like we have these under desk treadmills that I'm like, Hey, if you guys hit your goals this month, you're getting under desk treadmills. And like, it sounds so weird, but you just really care and value the people that you work with. And like, it is a healthy culture. Like if you're always championing their causes and investing your time and resources into them, it's just a beautiful culture. And it sets the example for all of the other employees to do unto each other. And so. I lied. I have one more question. Yeah. Do you ever still give rewards and nice things like that if they don't hit their targets? Or how do you handle that? A hundred percent we do. Because okay. there's, let's say, two different categories of ex excelling or winning. You have production and then you have character. If people hit their production goals, a hundred percent, you get bonuses attached with those. We really like to heavily reward those. And we have in our weekly meeting, we have what's called the WUSS Award every week. It's the Weekly Uncontested Superstar Award. And it's like, it's voted by members of the staff. You can't vote for me because I, I don't want the award, um, but it's for us, by us type of vote. And it's who demonstrated amazing core values this week. And there's paid time off. There's a, a gift card that they get every week for performance, hitting numbers. We reward that heavily. And for character performance, we reward that, I think, just as heavily. Like anytime we see people doing something that aligns with our core values, we call it out and we reward it so that people know that that is the type of culture we want. No, I, I love that. I think it, it's easy as business owners to, and, and I'll be vulnerable here. That's been a challenge for me of feeling like I'm rewarding mediocrity mm. because I'm not wired like that. I actually don't want to be rewarded unless I achieve what I was supposed to achieve. Yeah. But the problem with that is like, if you look at, managing people and rewarding things through the lens of how you want to be managed, you're already doomed. Right. Oh, yeah. And yeah. when you have that environment of positivity, people are going to be more motivated. People yeah. are going to be like, even when I had a bad month, Chad really cares about me. Chad's got my back. Like mm -hmm. I have a future here. And so I, I love that you shared that even in downtimes, just keeping that upbeat and positivity and encouragement is really the, playing the long game. Yeah. Awesome, you whatever man. you think the level of praise is, just take it like 10 times up and that's what your employees need, <laughs> which is weird. <laughs> I'm not like a natural cheerleader. I'm more of like, don't talk to me. Let me like focus on my stuff, but you just got to adapt. So. Awesome, man. Hey, I appreciate you coming on and any closing thoughts you want to share with the audience? Chad's a badass guy. So please, before you say that, Chad, where can people get a hold of you or follow you or... <laughs> Check I'm like out. horrible with social media. You could search Chad Young and try and find a guy that looks like me on Facebook. I yeah. think I have an Instagram. I have, if I do, I haven't been on it forever. TheEasyHomeBuyer.com is our website. Chad Young on my Facebook. Anything you want to leave the audience with? No, maybe just kind of taking it full circle and just 
let you guys know, like I was introduced to Ryan through Mastermind Group a couple of years ago, and I initially actually paid him to mentor me to talk about land development and kind of teach me that stuff. And since then, we have just had, we've grown as friends and we're constantly bouncing ideas off of each other now. And it just, it's just morphs into, I just cannot encourage people enough, find a mentor, find somebody that you can plug into. The amount of value I have gotten and hopefully given to Ryan in return, it's just iron sharpens iron, man. Our businesses are getting better every day because of the conversations that we have outside of these podcasts. So find somebody you can plug into. It is rocket fuel for your business. Boom. I love it. Thanks, Chad. Yeah. You Thanks got for it, man. coming on, man. I'll see you next month. All right. All right.